0: You know, when something happens, uh, particularly big things like war and, or things that come around that really affect people's lives. It's always a, a kind of a choice, you know, you make as a pastor about, you know, where do you go with the sermon? Do you go into this topical area or do you kind of stay the, you know, the course that you're on? And, uh, I want us to let you know, obviously we're mindful of what's going on in the world, but I kind of have this philosophy that God's word is like a rock, and as long as you stay within the, the word of God, you're going to speak to whatever situations are going on around the world. God's word will speak to it, and I kind of take that story where, where Peter, you know, is told by Jesus to walk on the water. You remember that story, they see Jesus out there, and they think he's a ghost, and And Jesus, to convince him he's not a ghost, he says, come on out. And so Peter gets out. And the scripture says that he begins to walk towards Jesus. But then as he looks around and sees the storms, he begins to to sink. His faith begins to shake because he sees all this stuff going on around him. And Jesus grabs him, of course, and pulls him up and says, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And in my mind, I always, uh, all throughout my life, you know, I've been a pastor now for almost 30 years. Or maybe more, I can't remember. No, almost 30 years. you know, during that time where it was 9-11 for the U.S., there's been countless wars. There's been all kinds of, you know, shootings and stuff going on, particularly in my country. Uh, In Europe now, we had the Ukraine-Russian War. There's lots of stuff that always goes on the storms. And when something happens in Israel, we have a tendency to to focus a little more on it just because of who they are and their place in history uh, in the past, and I believe also in the future. But I also believe that the Word of God just kind of moves forward. And the best thing we can do is stay, keep our eyes on Christ, keep moving forward, keep proclaiming his word, keep teaching his word, and let everything else kind of come from that instead of chasing that topic or chasing that topic. And I know that might be some somewhat controversial with some folks. And I'm sure today in many, many pulpits, it's going to be all about Israel and this conflict going on. And I just want to say that we're not going to do that. We're going to stay in Amos, but we'd stay in Amos knowing that there are these other things going on and everything we say today and as we talk about the, the nation of Israel, which it's kind of interesting that we're in this, in this prophetic book, which gives us a lot of history of Israel, a lot of history of the conflict in Israel in a different context, of course, kind of a conflict within themselves that uh, I think we can, still, we can learn from it and take from it, you know, ways to apply it to today. So we're continuing the book of Amos today. And just as a reminder for those of you who may have not been with us for a while or following with us, uh, Amos is a prophet during the time when the, the Jewish nation had been split in two. Uh, there was a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah, and Amos was a prophet from Judah, but he was called by God to go up into the north, the kingdom of Israel, and to prophesy against the corruption and the extortion and the idolatry and all the sins that were going on within the kingdom of Israel. And today's scripture is a little unusual because we actually get a little biographical information about Amos in this passage. Uh, The person that compiled the teachings and sayings of Amos gives us a little bit of a a biography of him, a little history of him. And some of the conflict that Amos had to put up with as he was uh, preaching uh, this word of God. So we're going to start in Amos chapter 7, starting in verse 10. It says this, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, and keep that in mind that he's a priest in Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer, go back to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore, Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd, And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up and you yourselves will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. Now, as we get into this, it's important to understand who Amaziah was and the significance of Bethel. When the kingdom was divided about 150 years before Amos shows up here, the first king of the northern kingdom was also named Jeroboam. Uh, the king that is Jeroboam in Amos' time is Jeroboam II. second. And he's not a direct son of the first Jeroboam, because there's 150 years in between them. But he's he's the second of that name. And the king of the southern kingdom at the time was Solomon's son named Rehoboam. And we've talked about this a little bit uh, in the past, but in the last couple of weeks. But when Jeroboam I was made king of of the ten tribes that made up the northern kingdom he was concerned that the people would want to go back to Jerusalem in order to worship, so he sets up two places of worship in the in the northern kingdom of Israel, and one is in the very far south, which is in Bethel. That's Bethel. It's the southern part of the of the area the the worship uh, temples in the northern kingdom, and then there's one in the very far north called Dan, in the area of Dan. And Cindy and I actually have seen the remnants of that temple in Dan. And his idea was to build these places of worship so that the people would not go down into Jerusalem to worship. And Bethel is an interesting name because it means the house of God, Bethel. And, uh, and so there was a, there's a lot of history. If you look up in the, in the Bible, you'll see that Bethel is talked about quite a bit. And it was very close to Jerusalem. It was only about 20 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And of course, back in the day when you only got around by foot or by donkey, 20, 20 kilometers is a long ways. Uh, one, if you ever go to Israel, you'll be astonished by how small it is and how quickly you can drive from place to place. Uh, but it's, it's you know, of course, back in the time, 20, 20 kilometers is a long way. And then Jeroboam, the first Jeroboam, does something which is just kind of extraordinary, is that he has two golden calves cast and he places them in the temple down in one down the temple in Bethel and one in the northern temple of Dan and of course this is something that if you know the history of Israel just it's kind of baffling because you know we have this history of Israel when they were in the desert and they built a golden calf when Moses went up to the the mountaintop to to receive a word from the Lord, eventually comes back with the Ten Commandments. And then, you know, when he sees this golden calf, Moses is not happy, breaks the commandments, grind, you know, has the golden calf torn down, destroyed, ground up into dust, and he makes the people drink the dust of the golden calf. And he's angry with them. And yet they, does the exact, they do this thing. They're not just one, they make two. And set them up in the north and in the south. And in doing this, the first, king of Jer- the first king of Israel kind of sets up a, an almost antichrist type of faith where, where the very things the people of Israel are supposed to worship are the very things that he, he goes against. You know, Moses teaches him, don't worship idols. Worship the Lord your God only. And yet Jeroboam says, no, do worship these idols. And if you read the story, he says very specifically, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Makes you wonder, there must have been some deep roots about this whole golden calf thing that the people of Israel uh it's hard for us maybe to understand that they were drawn to this. And during this time of the first king of northern of the northern kingdom, there was a prophet who is unnamed. He's just called the man of God. And this prophet shows up early in the history of the northern kingdom. And he speaks towards the actions of the first Jeroboam, specifically around the building of these calves. And the other thing that the first king did is that the Levites, who were the priestly class, they didn't want to come up into the northern kingdom. They wanted to stay down and worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So the first king, Jeroboam, he had to find someone to be priests in these places of worship he set up. So he allowed anybody to be a priest, not just the Levites. But people of all the different tribes could be a priest. Which we might think in our minds today, that's not that big a deal. But it was going against what God had established for Israel. And so he's trying to set up this sort of counterfeit religion, which looks a little bit like the history of Israel, but it's not. And so this unnamed uh, prophet shows up and says this. This is in 1 Kings chapter 13. By the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah, so that sounds pretty familiar, to Bethel, as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. Now remember, this is the first Jeroboam. This is about 150 years before Amos shows up. So this is how the history of the northern kingdom begins. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Oh, altar, altar. This is what the Lord says. A son named Josiah will be born to the house of David, and on you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places, who now make offerings here, and human bones will be burned on you. That same day, the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart, and the ashes on it will be poured out. When King Jeroboam heard what the man of God cried out against the altar at Bethel, he stretched out his hand from the altar and said, seize him. But the hand he stretched out toward the man shriveled up so that he could not pull it back. Also, the altar was split apart and the ashes poured out according to the sign given by the man of God by the word of the Lord. The king said to the man of God, intercede with the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored. So the man of God interceded with the Lord and the king's hand was restored and became as it was before. The king said to the man of God, come home with me and have something to eat and I will give you a gift. But the man of God answered the king, even if you were to give me half your possessions, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink here. For I was commanded by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water or return by the way you came. So he took another road and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. So this is in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. So now you jump ahead 150 years and you have another Jeroboam on the throne, Jeroboam the second. You have another prophet coming from Judah, which is now Amos. We know his name. And where the first prophet came to warn the kingdom of Israel of its doom at the beginning of its existence, Amos comes near the end of Israel's existence. It's only going to be a few decades after Amos that the northern kingdom of Israel is destroyed. So Amos comes near the end of Israel's existence, and he, thus you see this kind of bookending of history between the first Jeroboam and the second Jeroboam, the, the prophet who's unnamed, the man of God, and, and Amos, and uh, two golden calves. I mean, you kind of see the symmetry that you see in this historic plan of God is pretty amazing as you kind of step back from it. And it just reminds me in times like today and this week, and we've been uh, watching on the news, that when things seem very chaotic, There is a plan in place. Sometimes when you're in the middle of the plan, it's hard to see it. You know, it's just swirling around you. It's right in front of your face. But as you step back from it, you see that God is moving forward with a plan. And he was doing that with the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is where Amaziah comes in. I find Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, to be an intriguing character because he is undoubtedly aware of the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Amaziah has to know the story that when the first Jeroboam established the northern kingdom of Israel, that this this prophet came up and began to prophesy against the things that they were doing, the idolatry in this particular case. He had to know this. And he had to know that Amos was pretty much an exact parallel to this history that that had already taken place. And instead of stepping back and saying, okay, God must be doing something here to have this symmetry going on. First Jeroboam has this guy come, the prophet, an unnamed guy, speaks against the sins of Israel. And now the second Jeroboam is in place and another prophet comes up from Judah and speaks against the sins of Israel. And he had to know that The first Jeroboam, you know, when he tried to have this man of God killed or seized, that, you know, his hand shriveled up and he had to, and that the man of God had to intercede for him. And that that first king of Jeroboam sort of took a step back and said, okay, hey, come to my place and eat and drink and I'll give you a gift. And that that first prophet had nothing to do with it. He said, no, I'm not going to do that because the Lord has told me that I can't eat or drink here. And yet with all this history And this clear parallel going on, Amaziah chooses to fight against Amos. He chooses to fight against this word of the Lord that has been expressed to him. And he begins by accusing Amos of a conspiracy. So the idea of conspiracy theories going on in places of government are nothing new. He says, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. He tells Jeroboam, he's saying some pretty harsh things. He's saying, you're going to die by the sword and that Israel is going to be destroyed and we're going to be taken into exile. The land cannot bear all his words. Then he accuses Amos of really just doing this for money. He says, he calls him a seer first. And a seer is not a prophet. A seer is kind of like a fortune teller. So he calls Amos basically a fortune teller. Then he says, go back to the land of Judah and earn your bread there. Do your prophesying there. In other words, he's telling Amos, you're really just doing this for the money. Go back to your own country and do it there. It's kind of an insult to Amos. And then he finally says that Amos has no right to speak in God's name in this temple in Bethel because it is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because it is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Not God's sanctuary. Not the temple of God. The king's sanctuary. And so Amaziah tries to undermine Amos by creating paranoia that he has this conspiracy going on. He's going to try and destroy Israel. He demeans his integrity. He's just doing this for the money. And finally, he makes Amos an outsider by saying, you know, this is the king's sanctuary. This is the king's temple. You need to go back. Go back to your own country. Preach in that temple. And Amos, being a typical prophet, which means he's not the the most gentle of souls, he fires back at Amaziah. And first of all, he says, Points out that he's not a professional holy man, nor did he come from a line of holy men. He says, uh, I am neither I was I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son. And I'm not a I'm not a professional religious dude. But I was a shepherd. And I took care of sycamore fig trees. So Amos says, Yeah, you know, I was, and actually the word shepherd here is more than just small, in the Hebrew it's more of like he was he was a fairly wealthy rancher, we might say, if we were gonna put that a different way. And he had, and he had an orchard. So he was an agricultural guy. He had his flocks. He had these trees that he took care of, sycamore fig trees. But God called him. He says, I'm not doing this because this is my profession. I'm doing this because God called me. The Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So if Amaziah doesn't want to listen to what Amos is saying, then Amos is like, look, this is coming from the Lord. It's not coming from me. I wouldn't have chosen to do this. I don't need the bread because I have a farm. I have flocks. I have trees. I'm not doing this for the money. I'm doing this because this is what God called me to do. And I'm doing it here because God called me to do it here. And then he lays into him, right? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up. And you yourselves will die in a pagan country. And Israel will certainly go into exile away from their native land. So there we see that Amos is definitely a prophet. Prophets are harsh. There's there's not a lot of soft. uh, Prophets aren't really pastors. They're speakers of what God has to say. But they're not like, oh, it's okay. You just don't see that in prophets. So what do we learn from this? Well again, coming back to Amaziah, I find him to be an interesting figure because I have to be being, being a, a person that's in ministry, and I guess you could say a professional you know I'm not like Amos though I do have two degrees in agriculture so i can I can kind of uh, get on board with him a little bit there. but I find Amaziah interesting because I wonder how he got to this point you know i've I've had several people that I've known over the years that we're very on fire for God. And somewhere along the way, they kind of lost that passion. They lost that zeal. Uh, in seminary, we were told that the average amount of time that a person spends in ministry after seminary is three to four years. And then they bail out. And that doesn't have a lot to do with the people who are in ministry. It has a lot to do with the way churches treat their pastors. But they, they, go, they leave. It's just too much. But then I've known, and I've known people, and I've been in contact with people over the years, that the, the fire has just kind of gone out, or they've grown cynical toward the church. And I, and I, and I think about how, how I was when I was younger, and how we were, you know, we used to you know, pool our money together to order a pizza, because none of us had any money. We were in, in you know, university, and we'd, we'd talk about the things of God. We were just kind of fascinated by all the stuff we were finding in the scriptures, Uh, I wasn't doing very well in my academics in school because all I wanted to do was focus on the Bible. Uh, God got me through, but uh, I wasn't a stellar student, especially my first year. Because all I wanted to do was read the Bible. I didn't want to go to calculus class. I didn't want to go to my chemistry course. I didn't want to do all this other stuff. I just wanted to read the Bible. And, you know, my academics reflected that. But there was a passion and there was a heart there. And I wondered, did Amaziah ever have that? Did he ever you know, stand on the, on the hills that surround you know, the plain of Megiddo where you can see so much of, of what is the land of Israel? Did he stand there with his buddies and think, you know, this is, this is what we're wanting. We're wanting God to bless this. And even though he was part of the northern kingdom, he probably you know, justified the fact that they had split apart and still thought, did he, did he ever think God is still with us? God is still wanting to bless us. And when he found this, time in his life is he becomes the high priest. And, you know, he knows he's not a high priest in the temple in Jerusalem, but somehow he has to kind of, maybe that's part of where the cynicism starts. He has to somehow justify the fact that he is a high priest without the temple that God has blessed. He's a high priest, but he's not of the tribe of Levi. He's a high priest, But he's displaced from God. Maybe that was where some of the cynicism began. And religion began to creep in. The religion of the rituals. The religion of, of, you know, just kind of giving the northern kingdom of Israel the, the same appearance of faith that the kingdom of Judah had. I don't know. But I know that somewhere along the line, when he had the opportunity to hear the true word of God from a true prophet, following in parallel with the history that he had to know so well, because he was the high priest in the city of Bethel that had been built up specifically to house this golden calf, to to be a place of worship. He had to know this. And when he had the opportunity to hear that true word of God, Amaziah rejects it. He pushes back. Because it's a threat to everything that he is. It's a threat to his position. It's a threat to his right to be a priest. It's a threat to the temple that he serves in. It's a threat to his king, which means it's a threat to his country. And instead of believing that God can overcome all these storms around him that he has to fear, he gives into it. And instead of embracing the hope that he sees and the, and the, and the, the, the very clear word of God He pushes back away from it and tries to undermine Amos and tries to make Amos look like he's a fool or a conspirator or a traitor or a money grubber. And ironically, the only reason we ever are even dimly aware that Amaziah ever existed at all is because of the very word of God he rejects from Amos. This is the only place we hear about Amaziah. It's in his conflict with the prophet Amos. Everything that Amaziah thought that he was trying to protect is now gone. And it was gone within a few decades after this conflict with Amos. The temple he worshipped at? Destroyed. Gone. The golden calf? Destroyed. The fine clothes that he wore Destroyed. The kingdom he served? Destroyed. The power he had? Irrelevant. The prestige that he had, it's forgotten. The only reason we even know this guy's name is as an object lesson of futility. And in this way, Amaziah is so different from Jesus. Jesus in some ways is like Amos. Jesus doesn't come from a priestly family. This is one of the things that they kept saying by what what, what authority do you do these things? What rabbi do you follow? Where is your authority? What family do you come from? Isn't this just Joseph the carpenter's son? Jesus heard things like that. He doesn't come from that priestly line. In ways, he's a lot like Amos. But in some ways, he's not because Jesus does have that pastoral edge to him. He has that comforting edge, but he also has the prophetic. We can never forget. Jesus says some pretty harsh things. And when he drove people out of the temple with a whip that he made, you see that prophetic edge of Jesus. But Jesus, unlike Amaziah, Jesus is free. He's free from fear. He's free from the hold of possessions. He's free from cultural expectations. He's free from hate. He's free from having a cynical view of God. And as I've gone through my own personal journey of faith, and I think many of you have probably experienced some of the same things, there's this part of us that longs to be like Jesus. I mean, we're called Christians because we're supposed to be, the word Christian means little Christ. There's something in us that longs to be like him, that longs to have that freedom, that longs to have that, you know, that perfect discernment between what he needs to be concerned about and what he doesn't need to be concerned about, whose opinions matter, whose opinions don't. He just kind of seems to have that. And certainly Jesus runs into conflict. Not everybody likes Jesus, which is kind of baffling to us, right? We're like, how can not everybody like Jesus? But they don't because he threatens. Just in the same way that Amos threatened Amaziah, Jesus threatens the Pharisees. He threatens their position. He threatens their cultural rituals. He threatens their place in the temple of God. He's a threat. And if he had just been embraced, people could have known peace but they didn't. Instead, they crucified him. But as much as I long to be like Jesus, there is within me this little Amaziah. You know, there's this person within me that, that wants to play it safe. There's this person within me that wants to hang on to what I have. And I find that, that uh, this little Amaziah in me, I battle with him more and more as I get older. Because when I was young, I had nothing to lose, man. Jesus, take all everything I've got and take my life and and take all my possessions. I don't care, cause it's easy to be free when you have nothing to get lose, right? But as you get older and you get positions and you get you know savings and you get you know you just kind of build those things that become our lives. It's it's harder for us to have that freedom and that trust that whatever we have and that we love, Christ has something better for us. And should He call us? to walk out of those places of the the titles or the securities that we've built up, that he's going to be there for us and that our religion needs to not get in the way of our relationship. And that's what Amaziah had happen. His religion got in the way of his relationship. And it's so easy for that to happen to us. And many of you understand this because you've had the same fight. You know, you long for that freedom you see in Jesus. You long for that boldness. You see in Jesus, you long for that willingness to abandon, trust, follow him without any kind of fear. But then there's the Amaziah, that small, pathetic, pitiful Amaziah within our soul that says, hey, there's a safer way of doing this. There's a safe version of life. And he begins to anesthetize your soul to prevent you from feeling anything too deeply. Let's not get too crazy here. Let's not get too passionate. Let's not get too enthusiastic. Let's just kind of stay in a good, calm walk. I think this is sometimes why Christians will sink into kind of a spiritual depression because God is saying, walk on the water with me. And we're like, "Mm, I think I'll stay right here in the boat where it seems to be safe, seems to be dry. And we see the exciting possibilities that are out there. But we never we don't want to go there because of fear. And that will actually depress our soul because our soul longs to be where Jesus wants us. Even though very often our heads, the Amaziahs in our heads will say, You're safer where you're at. And one of the best things that we can do to, for each other as a church, one of the best things we can do is to help each other keep our eyes on Christ. There's so much counterfeit religion out there right now and there's so much that can distract us from christ there's so many things that the world says hey this is this is not a big deal this is no problem you can you can engage in this and we and we compromise the amaziah within us wants to compromise i know that because i feel like i struggle with the compromise that wants to defer to culture over Scripture, I hate comp- I hate conflict. I hate conflict. I'm just kind of a wimp that way. And when it comes to a place that there is a compromise of culture over Scripture, my first desire would be say, Well, let's just all get along and we'll compromise. But why should we compromise the Scripture? Why is it the first default we go to? Is well, I'll compromise the Scripture in order to satisfy society. Why is that? That makes no sense. Why don't we tell society, No, you need to compromise and get back to the Scripture. But there's this Amaziah in us. And one of the things that we can best do to each other is help us to keep our eyes on Christ. We can encourage one another. When one of us stumbles, that we can lift each other up. When one of us makes poor choices, that we can speak into each other's lives. That we can encourage each other. We can be the body of Christ. That we don't just shoot our wounded, but we try to lift them up. And sometimes we have to be prophetic with the wounded. Sometimes we have to tell the wounded, you know, you shot yourself. You need to set your gun down, stop shooting yourself in the foot, stop shooting yourself in the leg, and follow Christ. And sometimes we have to be hard, sometimes we have to be gentle. But we need to be able to be in that place. And when someone makes choices, they've got their lives just all messed up, to speak into those lives, to help each other reset priorities. I need to hear from you, you need to hear from me, we need to hear from each other. This is why we as the Baptist Church, we believe in something called the priesthood of the believer. We believe that every Christian has access to a relationship with God where you can pray directly to God. You don't need to go through a priest. You have access. And there are times when you can be my confessor and I can be yours just because I'm a pastor doesn't make me holier, really, than anybody else. It's just a role within the body of Christ. And you have roles within the body of Christ. And in those roles... Your health is important to the overall body. Your spiritual health affects the overall body. Don't ever sit in a, in, a, in a seat in the church and think, well, my sin isn't really going to affect the church because I'm not really involved deeply in the leadership of the church. No, you have a place. Your life affects this bigger life. My life affects this bigger life. And we need to be there for each other. Not micromanaging each other, not manipulating each other, but being there in a, in a place that, is, that we can be honest with each other, that we can be open with each other, and we can, be, we can walk together to the places of restoration. Because without that, we become religious people. And religious people, religion very quickly becomes about power, becomes about prestige, it becomes about everything except the relationship with God. Amaziah struggled with that. Throughout the the history of Israel, they struggled with that. The church, Christian church, has struggled with that throughout our history. And the call of the prophet like Amos is the same to the call to, to any of us, is that we need to keep our eyes in the place of truth. Now, Amos didn't know Christ so when Amos was speaking, he wasn't speaking with a Jesus context. But we as Christians can read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And we see in his words, this call to Christ, to relationship. So when God comes to offer us his true word, his true way, his true life. Even if we think we have a lot to lose. Maybe we be willing to lose it anyway. In order to gain what Christ has for us. And if we do that, then our relationship with God will be that place of strength and of unity. And in doing this, we will be salt and we will be light. And in situations like the world going on today, we can respond with love and concern for everyone involved. It is horrific what has happened in Israel. It's, it's hard to look at someone whose family were slaughtered and beheaded and taken hostage and say, you need to love and forgive. But we know what's going to be the result if Israel just starts to go through Gaza and level that thing, building after building after building after building after building. The result is going to be the death of a lot of people that weren't involved in this. And it's going to turn the heart of the world against Israel. What Hamas did, they did in two days. If Israel goes in through Gaza, like the way they're saying they're going to go through every news story for the next couple months is going to be destruction, 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 destruction. It's already happening. This last week, this whole thing happened Saturday, Sunday. Every other, since Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if you've been watching the news, it's about Israel retaliating. Israel blowing up this hospital. Israel shutting off the electricity, food and water. Israel, it's already starting to look like this thing is going, this is Israel, this is the bad guy. And I don't know what the future is going to bring. This is a bit of a left turn uh, in the sermon here. But I don't know what the future is going to bring. But I do know this, that the scripture tells us that there will come a time when the whole world will turn against Israel. And it's something like this, how they handle this is going to be a big deal because a lot of folks are already going, hey, enough. But that's not how Israel rolls. Historically, you take one of theirs, they'll take a thousand of yours. In 1972, when the Israeli team was attacked in Munich, the, the Olympic team, and some of them were killed, you remember that story? Are you aware of that? The Olympics in 72, the Israeli team was attacked by Palestinians and several were killed. Israel, as a nation, over the next 20 years, hunted down every single person involved. And killed them. Because you take one of theirs. They'll take a hundred or a thousand of yours. And they're in a difficult place right now. Because they've lost hundreds at once. And this is very rare. Even in wars, Israel doesn't lose this many people at once. And on top of that, Benjamin Netanyahu's father was a professor of history who taught that eventually every ally Israel has in history will turn against them. That's what Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister, that's what his father taught. This is how Benjamin Netanyahu was raised, hearing the opinions of his father, that every ally of Israel eventually turns against Israel. And the only ones who are going to protect Israel is Israel. The only ones who will protect the Jews are the Jews. This puts them in a very difficult spot right now because their way of dealing with this, well, he's even said it, they will root out every single member of Hamas. How are you going to do that without destroying and killing lots of people who aren't Hamas? And this is where we as a church need to have wisdom also. How do we respond? Because if we're going to be salt and light, if we're going to be that people that represent the true relation, a true relationship with the, with the Messiah, a true relationship with the living God, how do we then respond in a way that isn't just simplistic, that isn't just shallow, but it is deep, it's understanding with empathy, the pain that the people of Israel are in, and the way they view the world, you know, that loss of almost a thousand people, it's unprecedented. You understand when they went to war in the Yom Kippur War, and when they went to war, the Six-Day War, they did not lose as many soldiers as they lost on that one day. This is unprecedented for them. And the way that they are programmed to respond, only us are going to take care of us. It's a dangerous place for them to be in. more dangerous than maybe they even realize. Because the world, after a while, is is going to forget what Hamas did. If the only thing they see day after day after day after day for the next couple months is the systematic destruction of Gaza, which has, what, almost 2 million people in it. So we as a church, as Christians, this is where we have to be a people that are on our knees for God in this place of peace, not just because it's Israel, but because this can cause, this could be the beginning of a horrible, Horrible slaughter of humanity. And where are we going to stand on that? How are we going to stand? I think we need to stand on our knees and be praying. This may be a step toward the end times, because the end times tells us eventually the whole world turns against Israel. I don't know. People always been asking me this week: Is this close to the end times? I don't know. If Jesus didn't know, I don't know. But I do know this: We're closer today than we were yesterday. We'll be closer tomorrow than we are today. But events like this, these are the kind of events that make you have to go, okay, how do we respond as a people of God? How are we going to pray? We need to think about it. Who are we going to, we know who we're going to pray to, who we're we going to be praying for. Because you know who, who makes up the Christian community in Israel and in Palestine? You know there's a Christian community there. Do you know who makes them up? The Palestinians. It's not the Israelis. It's the Palestinians. There's remnants of the Catholic Church. There's the there's a, there's a Jerusalem Orthodox Church. They're the Palestinians. Now what do we do? We need to pray and have wisdom. Pray first for wisdom and know how to go forward. Because just like we read in this story about Amos, Israel has a place in history. And next week, as we finish up Amos, we're going to talk about that place, uh, having a place of a purpose, a place in history. But let's not be, let's be careful, though, to know that Israel is still made up of human beings who are flawed, most of whom have rejected Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, we tend to deify Israel. We can be supportive, but we need to be supportive with our eyes open. Because there are people in the world who are Palestinian brothers and sisters. Who are standing now knowing their world is going to literally come crashing down around them. And what are we going to do? How can we help? How can we help the Israelites, Israelis? How can we help Palestinians? Knowing at the same time, awful, brutal, unspeakable things have passed between them over the last two weeks. But at the end of the day, this is why we have Jesus. Jesus is the one that kind of, he's that, he's that rock in the storm. And we build our faith on him because around us, the world is just going to get crazier and crazier. And we see it happening. We see the history unfolding right in front of us. And this is why as believers, we need to be very focused on who Jesus is. Because he is still the Prince of Peace. He's still the Messiah who came first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. None of that has changed. And so how do we proclaim that into a world that sees the idea of a prince of peace coming out of the Middle East as a joke? That sees the idea of a prince of peace coming from the Jewish nation as a joke. You see it as futile. You see conflict in the name of Jesus as a reason never to believe in him. How are we going to speak differently into that? That's really our challenge. Unless you're Palestinian or unless you're Israeli, which maybe some of you are. We're an international church. It's quite possible to have both folks in our body, which is something we also have to keep in mind being an international church. But if you're not, then it's not your... I don't believe it's our place to... To take one side over the other, it's our place to pray that Jesus would reign as the King of Kings, the Peace of Peace, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, in this area from which he came. Isn't it ironic that the Prince of Peace, where he comes from, is just a smoking ruin right now? So let's be in prayer and hang on to Jesus.